I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Today is, we're at ses in session 12 of Lifeway ex Lifeway's Explore the Bible curriculum. Uh, we skipped uh, session 11 because of the Missions Festival last weekend. And the context of that particular session was Mark chapter 14, uh, in which Mark wrote of the first Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest of Jesus by a mob led by Judas, uh, and the subsequent interrogations of Jesus prior to his being turned over to the Roman authorities for execution by crucifixion. And all of this occurred in the darkness prior to the dawn of the Friday of Passover week. And as we've seen in our studies, Mark moves quickly in what he's written. Details are a minimum. There's, there is one exception which I find interesting. Uh, when the mob took Jesus from the edge of the garden that <coughs> night, Mark includes something that the other gospel writers do not. Look at chapter 14 in your Bibles. To, to, to verses 51 and 52, which read, Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind him and ran away naked. <coughs> now why in the world is that there? Why would someone who always glosses over a lot, lots of details Put something like that in, in there. The other gospel writers don't include it. But before that, he says that the disciples all ran up, ran away. And this young man was there wrapped in nothing but a sheet. Some of the Bibles will say a blanket. All right. Not very much for being there late at night. Uh, and it, it, it says they, they tried to grab hold of him. He ran and they just left holding him holding a blanket. And so, I don't know why this was included, but many scholars, and I think it's speculation, of course. Mark doesn't identify himself anywhere in, in the book. Nowhere does it say, I am Mark, and this is my record. Tradition says it's John Mark. Right? But I think what the author is alluding to here is he was there when all that took place. The young lad, he was there. He, he got wind of it, he showed up, not part of the disciples, but he showed up and saw that and he ran. I think that's Mark. I think that's Mark, or the author of the book, which I think, that just strikes me as interesting, all right? Because it serves no purpose at all to the narrative that we find before us here in these scriptures. Well, chapter 15 begins with the Jewish religious leaders turning Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, to do what they could not do legally, namely, kill Jesus. 
Now we know from the book of Acts, however, they stoned Stephen to death with no interference from the governing Roman governing authorities. So their action regarding Jesus must have been motivated by the necessity for some kind of public humiliation of, of Jesus and getting rid of Jesus. And, and also the dissuasion and defeat uh, of his followers, those who were closely following Jesus. And spineless Pilate, against his better judgment, yielded to the demand of the chief priest by releasing the criminal named Barabbas from custody and condemning Jesus to the immediate capital punishment of crucifixion. And the charge against him before Pilate, he claimed to be king of the Jews. Jesus was beaten severely, mocked unmercifully. This, the verses in chapter 15 that lead into our main text for today start with the latter part of verse 20. You might want to look there where it reads, and I'm reading from the CSB, they led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. His, he was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. All right. Now we'll, we'll see now the unveiling of God's plan for our redemption from sin. The title of our lesson is simply Crucify. And the outline for our lesson is in three parts. We have named, the, our, our study guides have various names for these parts. I've renamed it. And our study, I think, goes along these lines. God's redemption plan, the cross. Number two, God's redemption plan, the blasphemy. And God's redemption plan, the completion of it. All right. God's redemption plan. All right. First, let's clarify what we mean by biblical redemption. Retired pastor Leith Anderson describes it this way. He says, there's a line in the Old Testament written by Isaiah that tells the result of God's gamble. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Although God has a right to own us because he created us, Anderson says, he gave us the option of freedom, and we all left. We chose sin and did not love him as he wanted to be loved. In response, he chose to send out his own son to look for us, to hunt us down, 
to find and redeem us at a terrible cost, the cost of his own life. He continues, a shepherd notches the ear of a lamb born to his flock and has rightful ownership. That lamb deliberately walks away. The shepherd, shepherd searches near and far to get that lamb back. A long time later, he finds not a baby lamb, but a grown sheep for sale at an animal auction. The shepherd recognizes his mark on that sheep's ear. He goes to the auctioneer and says, I, see, I can see the mark. That sheep is mine. The auctioneer says, listen, you must bid and pay just like anybody else. So the shepherd bids and pays an outrageous price far above any reasonable market value in order to get his lamb. He now has a double right to his own sheep from birth and then from redemption. God has a right to own us as creator and because he has paid the blood of his own son an outrageous price far above our market value in order to redeem us back again. And so we begin God's redemption plan the cross beginning in verse 24 you'll follow in your bibles right. and then they crucified him being jesus they being in reality just this execution squad wrote from uh pilate now the word that's translated crucified means simply to stake like we might stake a plant in the uh, with with a trellis maybe or, or it's just a, uh, a pole the simple phrase is recorded in all four gospels with no other detail given so that's all we know crucifixion was designed to produce a slow death with the maximum amount of pain and suffering. There's no description here of the nails in the hands or wrists uh, and the feet, no description of how the cross was raised and the added pressure on the body that would, it would cause, no description of the agony of the wounds on his back against the rough wood of the cross and the difficulty in breathing. There's no description of that. Why? Because everybody at that time knew what it was like. This was not something new. All right. There really is, is no description needed because everyone had seen the crucifixion and it was something you could never forget once seen. It was a horrible way to die. Picking up where I finished reading. And then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Jesus' clothing, Jesus' clothing had been removed. And being naked on the cross was just part of the humiliation that the one being executed involved. All right, that's just the way it was. And the execution squad, the soldiers, divided Jesus' clothing among themselves. That was their normal procedure. John's Gospel 
says that the casting of lots was mainly done for Jesus' seamless inner garment. And I don't know anything about the first century game of lot casting. Uh, I know that uh, our folks say maybe casting, like something like casting uh, dice, you know, but it was casting lots. Uh, but I, I do know that verse 18 of the prophetic Psalm 22 uh, it says, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That was way back in Psalm 22 where this was prophesied. All right. Verse 25 says, now it was time, now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And I'm glad that in the CSB uh, version uh, translation, it says nine o'clock because I never can keep descriptions like the third hour or the sixth hour straight. Mm -hmm. I like when somebody does this for me, it's, it makes it easier, all right? And so it's about nine in the morning. I'm, I'm, I'm just astonished, really, uh, at how much had occurred in the previous 12 hours or so in real time. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we have it laid out before us and we've seen it uh, dramatized I'm aware that in the 2004 movie, The Passion of Christ, it, it covered it all in, in just a little over two hours, all right? But, but that's Hollywood time, not real time. That's doing things in that uh, movie fashion, all right? Nine in the morning. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews, all right? Now then... We find from the other Gospels and, and from all extra biblical content that uh, normally the uh, victim of the execution by crucifixion had a plaque that was nailed to the cross or hung on the cross in a fashion that described the crime. Some even say it was he wore it on his neck as he carried the crossbeam of the cross to the place of execution. We don't know for sure. But John tells us in his gospel that it was written in three different languages so nobody could not miss what, the, what he was being crucified for. All right. The king of the Jews. The leaders got upset about that, by the way. They wanted Pilate to change that. To, uh, he claimed to be king of the Jews. Right? Uh, what's done is done. No way. And he said that in a spiteful way. Right? The king of the Jews. Uh, recall, we recall that the, the uh, Shortly following the birth of Jesus, Magi came, came to Herod with a question. And what was the question? Where is he? Where is he? Born, king of the Who Jews. is born king of the Jews? That struck terror in Herod's heart. Likewise, it struck terror in 
the mind of Pilate, the authority. <clears throat> All right. All right. They crucified him. It says in verse 27, they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. I've read that the this word criminals literally means plunderers. Plunderers. Which can be taken to mean robbers or, or thieves. But those two offenses would not be cause for capital punishment, probably. More than likely, these plunderers were insurrectionists or revolutionaries, if you will. And this would even fit the charge against Jesus, for to claim a kingship other than Caesar would be considered an act of treason. Jesus was in the center there, on the center cross. And we recognize that Jesus, he's the center of everything, isn't he? He's the center of Christianity. He's the center, center of our, our calendar, B.C., A.D., Jesus. Jesus is on the center cross with his arms outstretched, reaching out to criminals on each side. And we... We know that James and John had asked Jesus earlier to sit at his right and his left in his glory. Back at, that was in Mark chapter 10, verse 37. And Jesus told them they didn't know what they were asking. Because what Jesus was experiencing now was certainly not the type of glory that James and John had in mind. Jesus was on the cross, taking our sin upon himself taking the penalty of our sin upon himself. Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In our Bible text, it was the time of the Passover festival, which commemorated the, the time in Egyptian captivity when the death angel passed over those households which had the blood of an unblemished lamb smeared on their doorposts. But Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus on the cross, the center of God's plan for our redemption. John the Baptist says, what when he saw Jesus approaching? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. God's redemption plan comes now. The blasphemy. The blasphemy. All right. We skip to verse 29. Some of your Bibles may have verse 28. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It was added sometimes later. It refers to verse uh, 27. Verse 28 says, so the scripture was fulfilled. It says, and he was counted among criminals. And that fulfilled scripture is Isaiah 53, 12. All right. But we move on now to 
verse 29. Verse 29. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! Ha! Let me stop right there. Ha! What they were really saying, some of you guys are, ha! Uh, that uh, means what follows is really sarcasm. All right. That's, they're telling, he's telling anybody, ha! What, well, it's not serious. It's just what follows is uh, uh, sarcastic. All right. Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. <clears throat> Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Well, some in the crowd, uh, such as the religious leaders and genuine mourners, there, would, would be at the cross for the entire time of the crucifixion. However, Romans usually uh, crucified people on major roadways where a lot of people would be passing by because crucifixion, a horrible way to die, was meant to be a deterrent. Deterrent, right? Like, which which would control the people, all right? And so uh, they passed by. They'd get a strong message. The people would about what happened to those if you challenged the empire's Roman Empire's authority. In addition, <laughs> since it was Passover season, a lot of people would be entering and leaving Jerusalem during that festival time. More than normal. Randy Fields says in his commentary, the Greek word that's translated here, insults, is actually the verb of blasphemy. Mark had used the noun form earlier in his gospel to describe the religious leaders' accusations against Jesus. Since many of them were also at the cross, the ones who had called Jesus a blasphemer were guilty of blasphemy themselves. And the phrase in, in verse 30, well, which, which says, save yourself and come down, uh, was, was actually a command, sarcastically put, of course, calling Jesus to, to come down, do it now. The sense is, that sense because, you know, we don't want to wait all day for that, come on down. Uh, you can do that. And, and that really, Fulfilled another prophecy we'd find in Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's Psalm 22, verse 8. In his remarks on, on these verses, Gary Sieber uh, asked, Where would we be if Jesus did save himself? Where would we be if Jesus did save himself? And taunting Jesus to save himself from the cross, we would, we would be forever lost if he did as they described. 
one of the great truths we can be thankful for is that Jesus did not save himself. But in his submission, he saved others from coming to death under the penalty of sin. Jesus didn't need a savior, and saving himself physically is the last thing Jesus would do. And we can be forever grateful he gave up his physical life so that we may have spiritual life here on earth and eternal life with him in heaven. Of course, Jesus could have come down, couldn't he? I mean, he had the power to do that. That would be his power displayed. He did that. But he did not do it. And someone has said, and we've often repeated in this group, it was the super glue of his love for us that held him there on that cross. Mark says in the last part of verse 32 that the criminals crucified with Jesus taunted Jesus as well. Luke tells in, in his gospel that one of the criminals actually turned on the other one rebuking him and then saying to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus said, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's from Luke 22, verses 42 and 43. And finally, God's redemption plan. The completion verses 33 through 39. Verse 33, beginning in verse 33. When it was noon, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Three hours. Three hours of absolute darkness. Have you been in absolute darkness before? Have you ever been in absolute darkness before? In Africa? We don't have any street lights. Oh, okay. No town lights. But imagine you've got just the glow of the stars. Ruby Falls. In a cave. In a cave, Ruby Falls. Uh, any of the cavernous tourist attractions. When, when you go down into the caves and you get deep inside the cave, and what's the, what, what happens then? They turn out the lights. The lights were just dim to begin with. But now you've got... There's a big bathroom close to the dining room. Uh-huh. Yes, when you go in, the lights come on, and then they go off, 
And I don't know what the time is, but you better not mess around. <laughs> well, you go into case. Total darkness. Now, when you say total darkness, black, you can't see, what's the phrase? You, never, you can't see your head in front of your face. Total darkness. Well, this is absolute darkness. And how long did it last? Three hours. Three hours. Mm -hmm. Three hours. That's yeah. That's kind of makes you think of the solar eclipse, wouldn't you? Yeah. But for the solar eclipse, you know, that, that only lasts relatively a short period of time. Yeah. The totalness of it is over in a matter of minutes, really. Six or seven minutes. All right? This was three hours. And even then, in the total, it didn't get pitch black. And, and so this was not some natural event like an eclipse, solar eclipse. Uh, this was something else. It lasted three hours. It could have been a solar eclipse anyway, because this Passover festival occurred in the spring at the time when the moon is full, meaning it's on the opposite side in the orbits. It's on the opposite side of the earth as the, as, as the sun. And so it can't be that. And so uh, this darkness was a, a supernatural uh, had a supernatural source. It was God ordained. All right. Yes, it was God in charge. It was God. All right. The Bible sometimes uh, refers to darkness as God's judgment. John MacArthur uh, describes the darkness not as the absence of God, but as his holy, terrifying presence. The Father descending to unleash his fury, uh, not against sinners in this case, but against the sin bearer, the Son, Jesus. Three hours in the black darkness, three hours of indescribable suffering. Verse 34. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Don't your, gospel, don't your Bible say forsaken me? A loud cry. Why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? James Morrison once said, his cry was the sound of sin's price being paid in full. This is the cry of the Savior being separated uh, from the Father for the one and only time in history as he took every sin upon him. Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53, 6. In the case of Jesus, the physical pain is nothing compared to being made the sin offering for all of mankind. This is another prophecy from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As our, our Lifeway study guides point out, holy God could not dwell in the presence of sin. Could not dwell in the presence of sin. Verse 35. When some of the, those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling on Elijah. Well, the sound of Eloi is similar to the Hebrew pronunciation of Elijah, Eliah. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But Elijah is believed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. When his disciples had asked Jesus about this, Jesus told them that Elijah had come in the, in the forerunner, John the Baptist. Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. This offer of sour wine to quench Jesus' thirst was, was really made uh, as a gesture to prolong the onset of Jesus' death. Or was it? It might have been simply another form of taunting Jesus. Sour wine, this sour wine was prophesied in Psalm 69, 21, where it says, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. This was a wine mixed with vinegar. 37. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. In his weakened condition, Jesus must have been supernaturally enabled uh, because this was a cry of victory, not a cry of defeat. John's gospel, gospel record says that the cry was, it is finished, meaning redemption is now complete. Jesus had paid it all. <clears throat> 38. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was a heavy uh, partition, roughly 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. It separated the holy place in the temple from the holy of holies in the temple. The latter was where only the high priest could enter once a year to make atonement for Israel's sin, carrying blood from the altar inside. The place was considered symbolically to represent the presence of God. By ripping the ripping of the curtain from top to bottom uh, showed that it was an act of God, not of, of man. It is signified that uh, sacrifices at the temple were no longer necessary to atone for man's sin. Jesus had paid it, paid it all. 
Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice and now offered direct access to God the Father. He became, in effect, a high priest, all right? We now have direct access because of Jesus. And so we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through Jesus' flesh. You'll find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. And then find out closing verse. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion. This would have been the soldier in charge of the execution squad. He likely would have been standing near Jesus and would, would have provided the witness that he really was dead. Of course, he was also a witness to all the unusual events surrounding Jesus' death. His declaration that Jesus truly was the Son of God contrasted sharply with those who had mocked and, and denied Jesus. You know, now, in the Ten Commandments, John Wayne was the one that said those words. John Wayne said what? This is through the... He that was the only part he had yeah, was in the John, Ten Commandments. Was John Wayne in the Ten Commandments? Yeah, that was his only rule. Oh. You know, that one line. <laughs> one line. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, how he understood, how the centurion understood the phrase Son of God is, is really not known to us. Uh, one thing is for sure, this event, which included three hours of total darkness, was unlike anything he ever witnessed. Right. Now, in his sermon titled, Right Smack in the Middle of Sin, Larry Moria tells this story. In the horse and buggy days, a father went to school, the schoolhouse to pick up his three children, ages 9, 11, and 17. As soon as, soon as he had them in the buggy, and just before he stepped in, probably out of fear of the storm, the horses bolted and took off in the blizzard. Hours and miles later, when he found his children, the 17-year-old stood over the dead, frozen bodies of her brother and sister, ages 9 and 11. Sobbing uncontrollably, she collapsed into his arms. When she had regained her composure, she explained to her dad that she had tried to take her big, heavy coat and wrap it around them all, but she said the coat just wasn't big enough. So Moyer says, the blood that Christ shed on the cross was big enough to cover all of your sins and mine, all your lusting, all your lying, all your cheating, all your hatred, all your own faults, all your own I wanted to close quickly with a, a video. Let me see if I can get it up here. <clears throat> yeah. 
Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus. Rescued us from the dead. Brought us new life. And so we express our gratitude this morning. Not only as we've studied, but as we worship. We've done it all in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.